Greetings and welcome back to another episode of Podcast is a Seven Letter Word. I'm Brendan Buck, a partner at Seven Letter, and these are some of my favorite episodes. We are introducing two new team members here at Seven Letter, not just any team members, some uh, senior folks who are adding some real firepower to, to our team, so we're really excited about it. Uh, new Wexler is joining Seven Letter as a partner. And Annalise Keller is a senior director with the firm now. Both of them will be in our Washington, D.C. office. Both come with all kinds of great experience uh, on and off of, of Capitol Hill. Um, obviously, uh, I come from Capitol Hill as well, and, and so they uh, are, are close to my heart in that way. So let me start just by, by introducing them, um, and if they can just talk a little bit about themselves. New, welcome. Tell us about you. Uh, thanks. I'm, I'm happy to be here. This is, uh, I think, uh, week three. Um, my sort of short 30-second background is that I um, I was born in Vietnam. I grew up in both Carolinas. I came to uh, Washington after college, worked on Capitol Hill and on political campaigns, um, and uh, sort of in and around politics um, in um in 2013, left the Hill to go work for um, for Twitter um, as their first policy communications person, and then worked for Facebook and Google in similar capacities. So this is, uh, I just realized, an SEC podcast, yes. because New went to South Carolina, and Annalise uh, is an Auburn Tiger. I went to Georgia. Uh, Annalise, welcome. Tell us about you. Thanks, Brendan. Um, that's right. I'm an Auburn grad, proud Auburn grad. Um, I moved up to D.C. like I think many other people in Washington as an intern uh, and worked on the Hill, did you know, kind of various roles for probably around 10 years, uh, taking breaks to go live in random places across the country and work on political campaigns. Um, enjoyed that. And then for the last two years, I was Senator Cory Gardner's communications director. One of the best communicators in Congress, I would say. Exciting. Um, so New sort of like breezed by this, but he obviously has one of the most impressive resumes around town when it comes to having worked for three of the biggest tech companies. And I know that New doesn't like to be typecast as just like the tech guy, but I'm going to jump right in there anyway. Um, so let's let's go with you know the the light stuff. Uh, violent extremism uh, on on tech platforms is obviously, especially after January sixth, is like the big topic. What can be done about it? You know, as 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 tech companies, is there a role for Congress in your view? Is there anything that we can do about it? What what, what do we think? Yeah, on on that particular issue, um, it it it's. Um, there are there are certain types of speech that are um, or certain types of content content that are well defined and regulated. Um, there are um, uh, like child sexual abuse material um, is illegal. It is um, it is is tracked and prosecuted, and that that's that's actually easier political ground for some of the companies when you get to uh, when you get to violent extremism. Um, you're dealing with um, a lot of political speech um, and all of the issues that come along with that. You are dealing with more domestic speech 
um, and that is easier uh, or that's tougher to take down than you know somebody on the other side of the world. Um, so it's a lot more challenging. Having said that, I think the companies have come along, or when I say the companies, the large social platforms that we know and use um, have come a long way uh, on what they are willing to take down. So if you look at, if you go back to you know 2012 or, or 13, um, they're, they weren't taking down very much. Um, and if so, it was, um, it was taking them a while to notice and, and act on it. Um, now it's a lot faster. Some of that is just that there are more people on the platforms. Um, there are a lot more reporters covering these issues. And these, um, this content tends to go viral pretty quickly. Uh, and part of it is that the companies are using automation to detect and take down some of this content. So that's shaped the debate. Um, but um, I don't have a um, I, I don't have a clear cut answer for you, but I know that the companies are, are actually are a lot more engaged on it than they were. I mean one of the challenges that it appears you know, there's a lot of talk in not just this topic, but anything when it comes to regulating these tech companies. Um, there's uh, everybody remembers. It was Orrin Hatch who, you know, asked Mike Mark Zuckerberg, like, "How do you make money? You know, we sell ads, Senator." Um, there just seems to be a, a lack of understanding of even like what problems actually are when it comes to these tech companies. Is there? Has that has that changed in recent years? Is Congress catching up? Does Cong do, do you feel like Congress is prepared to even do anything, whether it's on, on content moderation, whether it's on antitrust issues, do, do they know enough to actually be dangerous uh, to these companies at this point? So on those issues, Congress, I think, has come a long way. Um, the first hearings dating back to, say, 2017 um, were sometimes painful because of the, the level of questions that members were asking, and, you know, and they, they just weren't that productive. Now I think that um, the staff and then the members are, are asking better questions and follow-up questions, um, and they're sort of probing the right areas. Um, I, I think the challenge is that, um, is that there, are, there are things that Congress can address like antitrust and privacy and you know and federal agencies can there are things that government can do a lot of what government wants to do the first amendment expressly prohibits them from doing that um, so I, I think we spend too much time on debating content rules because I don't really think that there is a big role for for government and, and Congress to to do something there um, Yesterday, the House Democrats, mostly House Democrats, uh, announced a, a package of bills dealing with antitrust, and that's probably more in their sweet spot, both ideologically and also um, within their their jurisdiction. So I think that they're they will probably um, get more traction there than um, sort of going around and around on, you know, on, on content regulation. So uh, these tech companies, uh, these platforms, I think, have, especially you know, in the time that all of us have been around politics, have, have really transformed the way politics work and um, had, had a real impact. Um, Annalise, you've been doing this for, for you know, close to a decade. You've worked for, I would say, one of the most conservative members of the House. You've worked for probably some more what you consider centrist members. 
Um, in your time in politics, how would you, coming from the Republican side, how would you describe the evolution of the party? And there's a, you know, it's everyone's favorite topic right now of the crack up in the Republican Party. Is that overstated? Um, you know, where do you, where, how do you assess where the party is right now? You know, in in the minority uh, in Washington, um, and, and what are the you think the sort of chances for for a comeback? Yeah, I mean. That's a tough question. I think I've definitely seen so many changes in the party. Um, and just to bring it back to a little bit to the tech conversation, I mean, even just the role that the social platforms have played from where I started with, you know, back in um, 2010 with, you know, Twitter and the role that, and, and obviously the president's role bringing, President Trump's role bringing Twitter into the forefront. I mean, all of that has really, I think, shaped um, the political landscape and has has definitely um, caused a lot of of growth there. But you know, I think as far as as far as the the schism in the party right now, I mean, I, I don't. I think it's very real. I think it's it's not been overstated in my in my view. I think it's something that the party you know kind of desperately needs to address. Um, I think. I, I don't think it's a hopeless endeavor. I mean, I definitely think it's it, it, there are easy ways to kind of bring everyone, you know, kind of under the umbrella of the party. But I think to ignore the schisms would be wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to remind people, like, nothing is forever in politics. And all of us have, have you know, seen, remember headlines of, you know, permanent majorities that, you know, after 9-11, it was going to be a permanent Republican majority in Washington. Um, and that never never changes. You know, my sense is though, and you were in Cong- you've been in Congress more recently than I have. You know, at least when I was there, um, at least there was a bit more of an open schism. That there were more people who were at least Trump skeptical. You know, that's obviously the big the you know everything sort of centers around that question. My sense is uh, over the last couple years, at least for elected officials, and I'd be interested in your your take on what it was like having Cory Gardner run for re-election in a party where there weren't a whole lot of people who were, you know, anti-Trump, if you will, and how you, um, you know, the, my sense is that the, there are not really two big equal sides on the question of, of Trump in the party. Uh, there's a big voice for people who, who are Trump skeptical or anti-Trump in the media, but when it comes to voters, there aren't that many. And I feel like the party is really sort of um, the party is not grappling with it in the way that maybe the media conversation in Washington is. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it was it the national conversation around the race in Colorado was was always very different than than what you'd see on the ground as it is with you know tons of races, but in particular, really expressing to the national media, you know. It, the Republican Party in the state of Colorado, you know, President Trump had an extremely high uh, approval rating. I mean, there wasn't that that schism within the party. Um, and so, you know, of course, you know, kind of bridging that gap was something that 
you know, not only with the policies kind of threading that needle as, you know, being here in Washington, but also explaining that to the media that was covering him day in and day out, you know, why he was taking, you know, you know, how he was approaching different policies and, and serving his constituencies and, and, you know, making sure that repre- he was representing, um, you know, all Coloradans. That was a, a daily challenge. I and mean, I think you're exactly right. How much did the Donald Trump issue, and I just say that broadly, hover over your race. Um, you know, I think Colorado is, I think, kind of a state that was just sort of slipping away from the Republican Party in general, and I think that's probably the biggest challenge you face there. But, um, you know, so much of Washington gets wrapped up around Donald Trump issues. Um, what was your experience in 2020 as it relates to actually being on the campaign trail? How much of was that, was, was it, did you feel that presence in Colorado in the same way we feel it in Washington? No. And, and I mean, of course, everything became about the global pandemic and, and no one cared about President Trump to, to a large extent. Um, I mean, we were not hearing that from Coloradans. We were hearing, you know, the, you know, we need to have access to, you know, tests and, you know, we need to get test kits. We need to get, you know, PPE. I mean, that was the day in and day out conversation of what we were doing. Um, I think, I think there was always, I mean, there was always the lens of the national conversation that was, of course, you know, a factor into all of the news coverage and the stories. And there was always kind of, you know, the the Trump factor to whatever, you know, was driving the news. But what we were hearing from voters and from constituents was was far apart from the, from the national press corps, um, you know, Trump conversation. Yeah. So... Obviously, the the probably the biggest change in politics as it relates to both of these topics is Donald Trump's been removed from a lot of these social platforms um, in the last couple of years. Um, New, do you think that is going to have a, a, a meaningful change in you know does that change the the, the discussion in politics? And um, you know what what is that? Uh, what what is that? Does that give you pause in any way when people are, are removed from platforms, or do you think in this case it was entirely uh, justified? Yeah, I mean, I, one, I, I think that he he used social media very effectively as an on ramp to cable news and and everything else, um, and he is still able to get coverage. He just has to do it in a different way. He has to sit down for an interview or he has to make um, actual news, do something as sub, um, that's substantive. Um, you know, the I, I think that early on, you know, maybe back in February and March when he was firing off, you know, um, sort of email, essentially email tweets uh, to reporters, he was able to, he was able to, um, to, to get that fix and and weigh in on things, uh, but he just isn't getting the same coverage that he that he used to get, and I think that's because on social media it is just um, he is it's very easy to just throw the tweet on the screen or to walk around you know the halls of Congress and ask every member what they think of it, um, and um, now you know. People haven't read his email statements. I mean, political reporters have, but um, but a lot of people haven't. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that you know the idea of um, 
the the idea of suspending a um, a president or a former president isn't something that the companies you know ever took lightly. Um, there were there were times back from. 2015 to you know to even pretty recently where the idea of suspending him you know wasn't even on the table it was just you'd be in meetings and they would say we're not going to suspend the president of the united states we just we can't do that um but i think that you know he pushed their limits and you know you sort of get to a point when um when you have you know press leaning on you to do it you have members of congress you know, and, you know, users complaining and a, you know, a legitimate threat, um, you know, of violence um, after January 6th, um, where I think it becomes a little, you know, it becomes more, um, more of, of an option. And I think the companies took it. And I think that, um, I think he's probably off for good. Like, I don't see Facebook in, you know, in 18 months saying like, okay, yeah, we're ready to have you back on. Um, Twitter has ruled it out and, you know, and YouTube hasn't said much, but I, but I wouldn't see them doing it either. That's so, interesting. Yeah. So, you know, it's something you were talking about, you know, trying to focus on issues that, that, that people care about. Um, the, pol- the politics and the Republican Party have changed, but I think obviously communicating what we do um, has evolved a lot. Um, what do you think is is most important these days for getting issues to break through? Um, and I mean, like you know, policy issues, uh, real things that that matter to people, and not the horse race stuff. You know, what have you found um, as a communicator are, are the most important things when you're approaching communicating issues? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of different ways to approach it. Um, you know, obviously, the thing that I think is most effective is personal stories. Uh, whenever you can find a nexus with a policy issue and, you know, the, the actual, you know, here's how this is going to impact John, you know, I, I think that that is the most effective storytelling to get your point out there. Um, I mean, from a practical perspective, getting to know beat reporters in Washington, D.C. is helpful. Um, I mean, they're the people who care about that, that uh, pet rock, and they're the ones who are going to want to write about it. Speaking of uh, relationships with, with beat reporters, um, uh, new, uh, what advice, you know, there's, there's so much attention on, you know, it's tech companies, but, but also just the, you know, a lot of heavily regulated companies right now. What advice are, are you giving to, would you give to, to tech companies that now find themselves in a spotlight, um, in a way that, you know, potentially there is more, uh, risk for them from, from regulatory or congressional action? Yeah. I mean, I think that for, um, for the companies broadly, um, I, I think that being um, like most of the companies have sort of gotten tripped up during the Trump years of trying to say one thing to Democrats and another thing to Republicans. Um, and it can it can blow up on you. You know, you write a check to one side and then the other side notices and, you know, and in the end, everyone thinks that you're um, that you're. You know, bias toward uh, toward the other guys. Um, I, I think that the best thing the companies can do is be transparent. Um, 
And, you know, that is a lot of that is in the content moderation space, you know, find a place to, if you don't already have it, find a place to um, post what you're taking down when you change rules, sort of be open, you know, be open about um, how that is going to be, um, how they're going to be enforced, um, you know, spending a lot of time with tech reporters um, and um, and explaining why you made certain rule changes. Um, and then there's a, there's a separate constituency that, that, exists almost outside of like typical politics in that um, academic researchers spend a lot of time with social data and, you know, and they, they analyze it, they look for trends. Um, they also happen to be a lot of the people who are quoted in stories about you. And if you, and, and what they want is data that is, um, that they can't get publicly. Um, and if you can find a way to, you know, anonymize that data, protect your users, so you're not giving them, you know, you're not giving them, you know, private information. Uh, but if you can find a way to give them data, and um, it one, you get feedback from academics on the things that they've things that they found, things that you're doing well, that you're doing not so well. Um, and it also earns you some goodwill with that community. So it's like this separate constituency that um, that over the last few years has really sort of grown. So stepping back from these these issues, uh, let's on the more personal side, um, I'm curious what got you guys into politics, what brought you to Washington? Um, knew you spoke about it a little bit, but Annalise, uh, what 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 inspired you to, to do this to kind of work? Well, I had a high school internship for a week where they allowed us to come work for our hometown member. It mostly consisted of folding letters, stuffing, uh, you know, constituent mail. Uh, I think I maybe gave one tour poorly. Um, I was really good at bad tours. Really good at bad you tours. You make stuff up. Oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah. This is where uh, George Washington lived. Right, right. Um, so, but oddly enough, like, I just, I think I felt, um, you know, really energized by Capitol Hill. And I was watching people watch C-SPAN with this, like, extreme interest. And I didn't understand what was going on. But I was so curious why these people were so interested in something that seemed you know, as a 16 year old, so boring. So after that, um, I, you know, studied, studied political science and the rest was kind of so history. This, <laughs> this was sort of always the plan then? Uh, you know, I don't think I would say it was always the plan. It was always a plan. Um, but that definitely, I think, put Capitol Hill on my radar. Um, and, you know, the internship was kind of a, let me try this out and see if I like it. And, you know, I, I, it turns out that it was, uh, it was the, the fast paced uh, environment was, was super exciting and, and stimulating. So I stuck around. I find there are two types of people, campaign people and sort of in, what I call in the dome people, people on the official side of things. But you've done a lot of both. Um, would you say you're one or the other? And do you have a preference between campaign work and the official side of things? I would. I have done a lot of both, but I would definitely put myself as a dome person. Um, I think because I've never really earned my stripes as like a field rep and kind of worked my way up through that, which I think is, you know, you get a lot of street cred for doing that kind of stuff. And so although I've done a lot of communications work on campaigns, 
Um, you know, I've I've never run like a voter outreach, uh, you know, door knocking walk book program. So I think that kind of puts me squarely in the D.C. Uh, dome camp. Yeah, I spent a couple of weeks in Tucson, Arizona, running a get out the vote uh, operation. And I was like, I don't know if this is really for me. I think I'm more of a, a policy <laughs> official side guy. Um, well, New, I have go way back with New. Um, he and I sort of, I don't know if we kind of came up through the House around the same time back in the day. Um, but you, you know, your politics goes all the way back to South Carolina. What, what's, what's your sort of motivation story? Well, I, I, my, I didn't grow up in a political family. My, you know, family had had different interests. I, you know, always, you know, enjoyed reading Time, Newsweek, newspaper stuff like that. Um, and um, this is it's kind of a, a nerdy story, but our, the um, it was my junior year of high school. I was uh, I bought the and and. Issue, uh, the book of the Almanac of American Politics. And it was the summer, uh, it was the summer between junior and senior year, and I almost read it cover to cover. And it was just one of those things that it was just like, just reading about like congressional districts and, and like all of, it was just, it was something that I really enjoyed. Um, you guys both must have been really cool in high school. Yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and you know, it's funny when I meet whenever I meet somebody who has worked on the almanac, I tell them that they're all they love that story. But it really was it was something you know, like you know, growing up in like uh, in North Carolina, it was something that I it was like a whole different world. Um, I would say in in college, in the University of South Carolina is you know right next to the the state capitol. Um, I took. Um, a poli sci class from Don Fowler, who's the who was a former he was a DNC chair during the Clinton years, and a longtime professor at South Carolina who passed away earlier this year, and um, and I took all of Don's classes, and you know he had always encouraged me to to come up to DC and um, and work in politics or work on Capitol Hill and. Um, and I did it. I started with a um, a, a senator, um, Fritz Hollings, uh, South Carolina Democrat, um, in his last term, and then sort of went on to do campaigns from there. Um, I want to wrap us up here shortly, but I thought maybe we could do a little lightning round just a sort of like state of things going on in Congress and, and what we think our sort of prospects are for Congress, you know, getting getting a few things done, if that is okay with people. Um, first of all, infrastructure. A um, lot of conversations taking place in the Capitol basement, which I know uh, both of you know well. Um, what do we people think is the likelihood that they're actually going to come together and do, I'll put this two ways, will there be an infrastructure bill and will there be a bipartisan infrastructure bill? Um, I think the chances, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a toss up at this point. I mean, I think everyone's you know hopeful, and there's a lot of chatter that I think will continue. Um, you know, I think obviously Senator Capito on the Republican side has been, you know, leading voice for Republicans working with the Biden administration, uh, you know, to to hopefully bring something around, but. To me, you know, I think it's it's a toss up. Senators love to sit around and talk with each other about how they're going to solve a problem. I mean, I think they'll eventually figure something out. Well, maybe let's talk about this way. I think this is a, a maybe a bit of a gateway question. New, 
uh, coming from the Democratic side, uh, the filibuster. There's so much conversation about the filibuster, and everybody wants to suggest that, like, that's the key. Just get rid of the filibuster, and all these other things are going to happen, which I'm a little skeptical of. But A, can we put that to, to rest now, that they're not going to get rid of the filibuster, or or, what do, you, or do you think that that's still alive? I, I think it's pretty unlikely. Um, you know, Senator Manchin was able to— um, to was a lightning rod for this. He was able to um, and sort of enjoyed the attention. Um, but I think that even if for some reason they were able to flip him on that, there would be six or seven other members who um, who would um, reluctantly take his place. Um, so I I think I mean I think the answer on you know on a lot of this and and. Some of my, um, you know, Democratic friends didn't like it, but you know, the answer is, you know, if you if you want to appoint more judges, then or elect more senators of your party, um, if you want to pass more legislation, elect more senators in your party. Like I think that a lot of the energy that we spend now, you know, on Senator Manchin would be better spent on the you know Wisconsin and North Carolina Senate races coming up. One of the things that does seem to have a little traction is uh, legislation to combat China and sort of rise of China. And I know that was something that your former boss cared a lot about. Um, do you think that, like, does the issue of, of um, you know, America needing to be the, the leader and, and, and facing the, the rising threat of China, is that like one of the few issues that could actually cross the political dynamic and, and people could actually support it from both sides, you think? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think they already have to a large extent as well. Uh, I mean, you know, I think that's one, you know, there's deep bipartisanship on foreign policy, you know, in the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, There always has been, um, you know, with Senator Gardner um, worked on a a pretty comprehensive piece of, um, it's called the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act to kind of be the the pillars in the area of here's how we need to be approaching, um, you know, making sure that making sure that, you know, America's voice is, is kind of leading policy, to, or leading, you know, international discussions on how, on, you know, humanitarian issues, economic issues, um, you know, and the like. So absolutely, I think there's a huge appetite for bipartisan support. I mean, whether it will like bubble to the surface of, you know, getting enough airtime to be something that's, you know, taken up, um, you know, and ultimately becoming law. I mean, I think that's a bigger question, but I think, you know, the appetite is there and the work's being done. And I'll give the last one to you, New. Um, obviously, in the last year, uh, COVID was the big story, but the, uh, maybe the other big, bigger story was um, the country confronting racial issues. And um, one thing that they people still seem to be working on in a bipartisan way is police reform. Do you think that that is something that this Congress is, or any Congress anytime soon is capable of actually doing meaningful work on? I think they're able to do some work on that. I mean, there's a there's a potential coalition with, um, you know, with with certainly Democrats, but also Libertarian Republicans who you know want to, um, who who want to curb police abuses. Um, I I don't think it will be anything um, dramatic. I think a lot of the, you sort of have an activist crowd with you know on the left with with rallying cries and then you've got people who are looking at actually you know what's what's possible and um and i think that there are also a lot of house democrats who um 
who who got burned last cycle who um, who aren't going to go down that path. But I think that in general, I think that like incremental reforms are possible. Yeah, I think so too. Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll wrap us there. Um, I'm really excited about this. New Annalise, welcome. I'm looking forward to some good-natured trash talking this fall uh, when college football season rolls around. Uh, but thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been the podcast is a seven-letter word.